Have you ever thought that somebody was giving you one thing, but they were actually giving you something totally different and yet way better? If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd love you to open up to John chapter 4. Now before we can dive into our text, we have to understand what's happening within this story, some of the context and some of the history, to really understand uh, how crazy and beautiful and amazing this story actually is. Uh, You see, Jesus, John tells us, has gathered his 12 disciples. His disciples have been baptizing people just as John the Baptist has been doing. Now, John the Baptist had gotten the attention of the Jewish religious leaders. They did not like the fact that John the Baptist had a large following, and so uh, they had been persecuting him. And now the Jewish religious leaders are beginning to turn their eyes towards Jesus because as Jesus begins his ministry, more and more people are beginning to flock to him, and they're afraid that he's going to become powerful. And so Jesus actually needs to leave the southern region of Judea and travel about 75 miles north up to Galilee. It's up in Galilee that Jesus is going to do the vast majority of his public ministry. Now there's a couple of different ways to get to Galilee from Judea. Uh, It's like I said, about 75 miles. Average person walks about 15 to 20 miles in a day. So you're looking at about a four day-ish. I'm not very good at math, but I think it's about that journey. The way though that many Jews would actually get there though would actually take quite a bit longer almost a full day's journey longer, because Jews didn't like to go through Samaria. Now, there are some uh, scholars that debate how often Jews would go around, but we know that many often would do this. They would walk out of their way to not go through Samaria. Why? Why did Jews and Samaritans dislike each other so much? Well, it actually goes way back. You see, when Israel was made up of kind of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, uh, they were not obeying God, and so God allowed in the northern kingdom the Assyrians to come and to conquer them and to carry them off. And what Assyria did as their way to try to stay in power is they would actually leave some of the people in the land, and they would take about half or so away, and then they would go to other lands that they had conquered, and they would take some of those people, and they would bring them in and resettle them in that area, knowing that they would wind up intermarrying, intermingling, cultures would be changed as a result. You have two different cultures, and and they knew that they would basically be able to break a nation's identity. The southern kingdom that had not been conquered yet did not like the Samaritans then because they were half Jewish, half other countries, other ethnicities. And and so they said, you guys have gone away from what God had commanded us in the Old Testament. How dare you? We want nothing to do with you. The Samaritans did not like the Jews because they felt that where they worshiped on Mount Gerizim was actually the rightful place. And yet the Jews had been worshiping in Jerusalem. So there's all these issues. Like Taylor Swift, now we got bad blood. All right? And it's been going on for a long time. I was going to sing that song, but then you guys want me to be a worship leader and be awkward. And so I. <laughs> so they actually uh, uh, have all kinds of, of a beef with Israel. In fact, when Israel comes back in Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple after the southern kingdom had been carried off into exile by Babylon, they start to come back. Well, the Samaritans actually try to 
get rid of them. They try to stop them from being able to rebuild the temple. Then in 332 BC, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Alexander the Great is like conquering everybody. He walks down into Samaria and the Samaritans come and say, we want to serve you. We want to be on your team. Uh, Would you let us build a temple on Mount Gerizim so that we can worship Jehovah there? And and Alexander the Great says, sure, as long as you're going to be on my team and do what I tell you to do. They're like, cool. And by the way, would you wipe out Jerusalem? So Alexander the Great actually marches on Jerusalem. He's going to destroy the temple there. The Samaritans are thrilled about this because now they're going to have the only temple. And yet God intervenes in a miraculous way. You can go back and read your own history books to find out how all that went down. But that was one more issue in the ongoing battle between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then in 110 BC, a guy by the name of Hyrcanus, who was the high priest in Israel, actually got an army together from Israel and they raided Samaria, destroyed the temple that was there on Mount Gerizim, and enslaved the Samaritans for a brief period of time. You see, there's all kinds of reasons why the Jews don't like the Samaritans and the Samaritans don't like the Jews, and so that's why most Jews would actually travel around Samaria when going from Judea to Galilee. But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, the text tells us that he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Read with me in verse 4 of chapter 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. I love how John describes Jesus. John is great to describe Jesus as fully God. But John also describes him as fully human as well. See, Jesus has a long journey to take, and it's the middle of the day, and he's been traveling since the morning, and he's tired. Just like you and I get tired, and he sits down at a well. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, Uh, you are a Jew, (laughs) Uh, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is shocking behavior. Like, we don't really get it in our culture, right? Because if I'm hanging out next to a water fountain, and a lady walks up, and I strike up a conversation with her, and I'm like, hey, can you get me a drink of water? Okay, that would be weird, all right? That pe- like, but me just having a conversation with a lady, like, that wouldn't be all that scandalous. Or... But in this culture, men and women don't generally talk to each other, especially if you're outside of their family. And then certainly not a Jewish man to a Samaritan woman, and certainly not a Jewish holy man, which is what Jesus was. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's a holy man, and he is now talking to a woman, and we are going to find out in a bit that she is a woman of disrepute. Jesus starts a conversation with her, and even she gets that this is awkward, like this is weird, like... She's like, why are you talking? You're like, you're a man, and I'm like a Samaritan woman, and why are you even having this conversation with me? Like, this isn't kosher, this isn't cool. 
Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus says to her, look, if you knew who was talking to you, if you knew the gift that I have, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. Now, there's no way she's not skeptical, all right, because she grew up around here. She knows this area. In the ancient Near East, like, water was incredibly, unbelievably important, right? They didn't have pipes and faucets. You just turn on, get some hot, some cold water, and it wasn't always clean. And so you had to know if you were going to survive where the sources of water were. Jesus is not from the area. Like, if he was, she would have known that. She would have recognized him. She knows he's not from around here. And Jesus is talking about some water that's living water. And she's like, for real? T tell me about it, Jesus. Tell me about this other water. Because, you know, if you know of a spot that I don't know of, like, that would be great. Because uh, I'd rather not have to walk all the way out here to this well. But you know she's skeptical. Like, uh, you don't know something that I don't already know. But she's not running away either. She doesn't just take off and, and say, you are crazy, I don't want nothing to do with you. She's intrigued. She's willing to continue the conversation. The woman said to him, verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You see, Jesus is trying to offer her something, but she doesn't yet get it. You see, all she can think about is physical water. You see, she thinks Jesus is giving her a backpack full of Disney swag, when what Jesus is trying to give her is Disney itself. Now, now let's be honest, though. That's a little bit of a crude analogy, right? But how often do you and I do that? Like, Jesus wants to give us something that is like so amazing that it will literally blow up. Like we can't even begin to comprehend how amazing it is. Life and life to the full. That's what he promised. That's why he said he came. So the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that they may have life and life to the full. Like life that will blow your mind. Like life that is better than anything that you could create for yourself. Like life that is an adventure that you can't stop. That even in the difficult, hard times, like it's still powerful and beautiful and amazing. Like that's what Jesus wants to give to her. But she doesn't get it. She's still thinking about just something that can quench her thirst for now, and Jesus wants to give her something that can quench her thirst forever. And we do this all the time, don't we? We're, we're looking for different things that we think are going to fill us up. Christianity, our faith, sometimes can be like 
just a, another backpack that we add to our already cool life. Like, well, I got my family, or I got my job, I got these things, I got sports, I got, and, and Christianity is like a nice thing that I'm going to add on. It's going to make my life a little bit better, a little bit more palatable, even when things are, like, but that's not what Christianity is supposed to be about. <laughs> See, Jesus says that he comes to give us life and life to the full, but that life is attained only when we die to ourselves. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Finally, Jesus, it's about time. Like you're breaking all these social norms. Like it's a, finally are trying to be a respectable person. Go call your husband. Now, Jesus already knows the answer, but this is about to get good. Verse 17. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Ding! <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, seriously, Jesus? Like, you had to go there. Like, in the original Greek, it literally says, oh, snap. Like, I'm not like, that's... Earlier in John's gospel, John said that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Okay, now we tend to bend one way or the other, most of us. Some of us bend towards grace, some of us bend towards truth, but to follow Christ means that we are to pursue both with equal fervor, okay? And that's what Jesus does. Jesus does not shy away from the truth of what this woman has walked through. Now, we don't know why she's had five husbands. You don't know why the guy that she's shacking up with now is not her husband, my guess is she's had a, a hellish life. And she has looked to fulfill her deepest desires in so many ways that have continually turned out to be empty. But Jesus is not afraid to share the truth. Now, Jesus has already offered grace. She didn't quite understand it yet. But Jesus has offered her eternal life. Life to the, that's what he's talking about when he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask him for the gift and he'd give you water that never runs out, that leads to eternal life. You see, Jesus doesn't shy away from talking about her past because it's important that she understands it so that she doesn't have to repeat it in her future. You see, he's not afraid to talk truth. Now, she has to be a little bit embarrassed. In fact, that makes the most sense when you see what she does next. She actually then shifts the conversation. She avoids what Jesus has just said, she starts down another road. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, because he just told you all about yourself and you never met the cat before. Our ancestors, she says, worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied. Now, like if I was to say to a woman that I'm talking to, woman, like that would seem very disrespectful. In this context, it's not at all. It's just like saying ma'am, okay? So, ma'am, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That is a shocking statement for a Jewish rabbi to say. That it's not about worshiping in Jerusalem. 
Let's continue on verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Again, he's not holding them back on truth here. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. You see, Jesus wants her to understand, even when she tries to shift the conversation to something else. He doesn't back away from truth. He says, look, salvation does come from the Jews. Why? Well, because salvation was standing right in front of her, and he was a Jewish man. Salvation does come from the Jews, but it's not about where you worship. You see, for so long, they thought it was, well, we worship on Mount Gerizim. Well, well, we worship in Jerusalem. Like, that's the rightful place. And, And Jesus says it's not about where you worship anymore. It's about who you worship. Jesus says, I am he. You see, he offers her the ability to no longer worry about whether she goes to Gerizim or whether she goes to Jerusalem if she's willing to worship God in the spirit and in truth, in accepting Christ, in believing in who he is. Now, she goes on, verse 27. Well, she's going to go on in just a second, but this is actually a great little piece of the story that John puts in. He says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. <laughs> like, I'm telling you, like, this is hard for us to grasp, but when they came back, like, surprise would be the understatement of the century. All right, their Jewish rabbi, right, the one that they uh, have begun to follow, is talking to a woman by himself, nobody else around, and not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman, and not just a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman that is of disrepute. And he's, they're shocked. It says, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? (laughs) They're too afraid. Then leaving her water jar, which is another great detail that John puts in there, right? She doesn't even take her water back with her, the whole reason she came out there. She leaves, she walks away, she goes back. The woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Drop down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, which was simply, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. What did she know? Not a whole lot, really. All she knew was that this guy had told her everything that she ever knew. And when she talked about the Messiah, he said that he is the Messiah. And she believed. She believed so much so that she was willing to leave her water jar and go back to the village and tell people. Jesus had not even died on the cross and risen back to life. She didn't even know that part of the story yet. She didn't have a fully realized eschatology. 
I'm not even 100% sure what that means, okay? It's <laughs> theological stuff. She didn't have it all locked down. She didn't know everything. But what she knew, what she had experienced, she was not unafraid to go and tell other people. And so she does. She goes and she tells them, and they come out, and they listen for themselves, and they too believe. And it's not just like belief. We use belief like way too easily in, in, in America. <laughs> Thank you, Don. Yeah, we do. In the Bible, when it talks about belief, it's not just something that you give mental assent to. It's actually something that you then follow through with. It's a way of living, not just a way of knowing. And, and, and they believe in that way, Samaritans, non-Jews. I mean, this is pretty scandalous. If you're reading this back in first or second century, wow, even Samaritans, it, it echoes what the angels told the shepherds when Jesus was first born. Luke chapter 2, we read this in verses 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, to these shepherds, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For who? For all the people, even the Samaritans. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You see, uh, John in this story does some pretty interesting things. He gives some great little details, but he also does something in the way that this woman interacts with Jesus. See, at first, she simply addresses him as a man, and then as a Jew, and then she addresses him as sir, which is a little bit better, and then she calls him a prophet, which is even a little bit better, and then she says, could this be the Messiah? And then at the very end of this story, he is being heralded, proclaimed as the Savior of the world. You see, that's what Jesus had always come for, come to do, what he wanted to offer to them, what he wanted her to have. He wasn't just trying to give her some Disney swag. He was trying to give her Disney. At first, she didn't understand. She couldn't get it. She's just like, I just need a drink. And he's like, I'm trying to give you something so much better. And finally, she understands. Now, I'd like to jump back for one main point today in verse 13. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, in first century Israel, you basically had two forms of water, okay? You had still water and living water. Still water was basically water that doesn't move. So a pond, uh, a cistern, a cistern is basically like a big hole that they would dig out of the ground, and then they would divert rainwater to go down into it. Uh, um, so the, the sea, like that would be called still water, okay? It doesn't move, and therefore stuff grows and it gets nasty, okay? Uh, living water would be like a, a stream, a brook, a river, um, uh, maybe if you could dig a well that, that was fed by, uh, you know, an underground stream, like that, that was living water. Living water was way better, okay? Because stuff couldn't stick in it and get stagnant and, and, and get nasty. So you got living and you've got still. Uh, when God called Brenda and I back here to Grand Rapids to plant a church, uh, we wound up buying a home uh, here, oh, when was it? I guess it was like last fall. Now, when we first moved to Grand Rapids uh, back in 2001, when I came on staff here at Calvary, uh, we bought a house in the city. We lived downtown in Heritage Hill, and our first home in the back corner had this little uh, uh, garden pond, okay? Now, if I was ever, like, if I had a choice 
I would not put a garden pond in any home that I ever owned, all right? There's a pain. But we had one. I was like, all right. So we tried to like make it work and raccoons and stuff would just eat any fish we put in it. But uh, then we moved to Forest Hills. We lived for a few years. No garden pond. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Then God called us out to Holland. We, we bought a house down in Hamilton. Garden pond. Okay, here we go again. And then God calls us back to GR and uh, the house we wound up buying has a garden pond. Now, this is not just any garden pond. Most garden ponds are like, you know, three foot by three foot kind of things, right? Uh, this is a colossal, this is like a giant's, you know, uh, garden pond. It's, it's massive, it's like 12 foot wide, like eight foot, and uh, uh, the stinking thing was still holding water, but it hadn't been taken care of in years. I mean, we're talking probably at least seven, eight years. So we had uh, got the house just before, uh, right at the end of fall, uh, we had a couple weeks to, to work on it because literally we had to gut the whole thing. Brenda and I and our four kids lived in the basement with a crock pot, a microwave, and a mini fridge for four months. Woo! <laughs> we were down there and uh, finally spring came. We we're like, all right, cool. Like, I'm going to actually try to like, get this pond like, to look nice again because it was disgusting. So I put in a pump. I started pumping water out and it was like black, like thick, nasty stuff. And, and most ponds, they're like a foot deep, maybe a foot and a half deep. Uh, I couldn't see the bottom, so I really had no idea. Well, a foot, foot and a half, two feet, three feet. This thing is like four and a half feet deep. Like you can swim in this garden pond. It's crazy. But we didn't even know how deep it was because it had so much gunk and nastiness. So my mom was like, hey, uh, I love working outside. Can I just like take the first crack? I was like, you be my guest because it smelled. It was so gross. So she worked on it for like seven hours one day. I worked on it for another eight hours another day. Another three hours after that, we removed over 30 wheelbarrows full of nasty, smelly gunk out of that thing. It was gross. We got it all out. I cleaned that thing up, and I put water in it. It was crystal clear. It was so beautiful. I was like, look at this. Look, you can see to the bottom. And we went and got some fish. My son, Kingston, he loves fish. And so we went and we got some goldfish because we didn't want to, you know, just basically make a beautiful breeding ground for mosquitoes. So 30 goldfish we put in there. My wife and Kai started talking the next day. They didn't think we had enough goldfish. She went and bought another 50. <laughs> 80 stinking goldfish swimming around. You could see them everywhere, like wherever. Like it was, it was, it was really like so pretty and clean and clear and so clean and clear that apparently storks and raccoons could see too because two days later we came back, there was like 12 goldfish left. <laughs> Sad, beautiful sushi feast for some, something, I don't know. Well, that, that pond was beautiful. But it was springtime. And in springtime, the sun comes up. And it starts warming up the water. And when the water warmed up, even though I had cleaned it all out and I thought I put in fresh water, this is what started to happen. Nastiness. Like at first I was like, I want to swim. Like this thing is beautiful. It's so, and now it's like, I can't see the bottom anymore. And there's algae all over. And it's just looking gross. It's all cloudy and fish. Like they're starting, well, what was left? They're like dying. I'm like, what's going on? Well, it's supposed to have a pump. It's supposed to be a pump that was going to pump water through a filter and then run down this little waterfall. I didn't have it. It hooked up. I didn't have any of that stuff. And so it just got nasty again. That's what living, or excuse me, still water does. How often, how often do we try to dig our own ponds and we think we can fill them with water and we can keep them clean and they're going to look nice and they're going to give us everything that we need and yet every single time they fail us, don't they? Yeah, we, we think that like I can find my identity in this job 
or in this relationship or in this athletic endeavor or in this musical endeavor or in fill in the blank. And sometimes we even do it with good stuff like church. We think, well, I, I, can, I can find my identity in my religious activity or in other good things like my family. Like I pour my, I pour my heart and soul into my family. That, that, that's good. But if, if you think that any of those things can satisfy you, you're gravely mistaken. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God says this to the people of Israel. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. How often do we do this in our own life? We think that we know exactly what it is that we need, and so we pursue it, and we pursue it, and we pursue it, and time after time after time, it comes up empty. It comes up dirty. We think, oh, but I can keep it clean. I'll clean it out, and it'll be good. But it won't, because it can't. You see, way too often in our lives, we find ourselves like the woman, running from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And an encounter with Jesus is the opportunity to find living water. Water that moves, that can't get stagnant, that can't make you sick, that can't destroy you. And that's what still water always does. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life to the full. If you're a guest here today, like if someone invited you and, and, and you wound up coming or maybe you're new to the area and, and you showed up, like first of all, let me just say, we're glad that you're here, like legit, like we're super glad that you're here. But I don't believe it was an accident that you showed up today. I think God might have something that he wants to speak to you about what it means to actually have living water. That the very thing that your soul is longing for, dying for, there was a a genius named Blaise Pascal. He was a mathematician, physicist, inventor, Christian philosopher, and he wrote these words. Listen to him. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that remains now is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. We, we call this today the God-shaped hole. And every single one of us is born with it. Now it's easy to sometimes think, those of us that have kind of grown up in church and are around church, like, yeah, like there's folks that need to hear this, but let's just be honest for a minute. It's way too easy in West Michigan for us to simply be cultural Christians. To me, the only thing scarier than knowing you don't believe in Jesus and have an eternity apart from him is thinking you do when you really don't. And there might be some in here today that God is speaking and like you can feel it. You know how you can feel it? Because your head's racing, stuff's happening in your stomach, you're probably a little bit anxious, maybe even a little angry. And God's saying to you, will you, 
Will you stop trying to find it in all these other things? You're not going to find it in your relationships or your work or your family or even your church. It's all good stuff, religious activity, but you'll never experience life and life to the full unless you come to me and give everything. See, Jesus doesn't just want a piece of us. He wants all of us. And so right now, what I'm going to do is I just want all of you to just to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm just a guest here myself now. I still call this place home. I love it. But I simply want to offer what Jesus offered to that woman. And so if you're here today and you've been drinking from empty cisterns, running to these places, hoping that they're going to fulfill you, and you've never experienced the living water of Christ, I just simply want to give you the opportunity to respond this morning, to say, Jesus, I believe that you died in my place, that you rose back to life, and God, I want you to come in and forgive me. Take over. God, I want you and nothing else. You can have all of me. If that's you this morning and that's what you need, just raise your hand right now so I can pray for you. All right, first time, like, I want Jesus today. Thank you. Thank you. Now, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but for the last few months or maybe even the last few years, you've continued to look for your identity in something other than Jesus. And today, you simply need to return to living water. Today, you need to return and say, God, I want you. God, I'm coming back to you. You already know that you're a believer, but today, you want to re-surrender. If that's you and you just say, you know what, I just want, would you pray for me? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. Amen. Yep. Mm hmm. Yes. Dear God, you are sitting here right now amongst us because, Jesus, you promised that when your body gathers together, you as the head are present. And, Jesus, you are real and you are here. And, God, you are at work. And so I pray for the hands that were raised that said that they want you for the first time. Jesus, would you come into their life? Let them experience what it means to know you as their savior, as their king, as their leader. God, in the quietness of this moment, would you allow them to cry out to you, to invite you in, to place their trust and their faith in you. And God, for those that have maybe been running to empty wells for the last number of months or even years that are saying, God, I want you and you alone because they know nothing else satisfies. They've tasted it. They know God, would you just accept them? Accept them back into your loving arms. Because that's what you do for us. A God who pursues, who never gives up. Jesus, thank you. Amen. For the rest of you, I want to leave you with two takeaways. You ready for this? Number one, those of you who have the gift of living water need to bring others to meet Jesus. The lady didn't know barely anything. All she knew is that she had had an experience with the Messiah and she had to tell somebody. She didn't know a lot. Some of you are like, I don't know that much. What if they ask me this question or that question? Stop worrying about it. You don't save anybody anyway, okay? That's what Jesus does. You just gotta talk about it. If you've experienced living water, 
like legit experience living, like that should transform you. And you should like want to be able to tell other folks. And if you're like, well, I don't know anybody really. Like, I just don't know that many. Like, I go to church and all my family's Christians and, you know, I live in Hudsonville and. (laughs) I'm sorry, Hudsonville. It's okay. It's all right. Look, if you don't know any Christians, you need to get to know some people who don't know Jesus. So go where they go. Stop making excuses and go. Because you got to have folks that you can tell about this living water. So number two, second takeaway, some of you need to be going to Samaria. All right, there's places in and around our city, and God is telling you, and this is not everybody, but there are some of you that God is saying, you need to go to Samaria. Every single one of you that's tasted living water, you need to tell others about it, okay? That, that, like that, we don't get a pass, we all got to do that. But there are some of you that God is saying, you need to go to Samaria. I don't know what Samaria might be for you. Maybe it means that you need to leave the comfort and the safety of this church that you know and love. And God's asking you to go and help out maybe another church plant that's new in Grand Rapids. I'm just, I don't know what that might be. I'm not, you know, I don't know, but. But there are some of you that need to go to Samaria. And it might mean that you start driving different roads, going to different places. Because we have to be the church, the legit followers of Jesus who have experienced the living water that are not afraid to tell others about it and even at times go into difficult and hard places because God has called us to do so for his name's sake, for his glory, that others can experience life and life to the full. Amen.